Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning is from Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. Because of your foes, to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father, we come now before you, having heard this beautiful psalm read in the presence of your people, in the presence of your Holy Spirit. You tell us in the Word that your Spirit is where your people are, and that your Spirit loves to use the truth to sanctify your people in it. We are desperate for the work of the Spirit, that He would come now and shine a bright spotlight on this word of Psalm 8, that we would learn things that we have not seen before, that we would be renewed in the truth and the power of the gospel, that we would be changed more into the likeness of Christ, that we would be fit as faithful ambassadors of yours in the world. Father, as I pray this prayer, I would ask that through that Spirit who intercedes and Jesus, the great mediator who rules and reigns on high, that you would receive it and answer it according to your will. Come and meet us now, we ask it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this psalm, Psalm 8, is a psalm I'm sure a good number of you in this room could probably quote some lines from, from memory. It's a well-known psalm, actually the very first of the psalms in the Psalter known as hymns of praise. It's the first hymn of praise that we find anywhere in the Psalter. But it's also uniquely situated. We don't often think of the psalms in this way, but they're a collection of psalms, the hymn book of the Old Testament, and they're situated and arranged by editors who put them in a particular order to actually teach us things about the importance of the Christian life. This particular psalm, Psalm 8, finds itself right smack dab in the middle of ten laments. 
Psalm 3 to Psalm 7 is five laments. The people of God, we might say, in the valley of sadness, coming into the presence of God, lifting up their voice to Him. And then Psalm 8 arises like a mountain out of that valley, a hymn of praise offered to Almighty God. And then immediately, Psalm 9, all the way to Psalm 13, which will actually be in Psalm 14 next week together, Psalm 9 all the way to Psalm 13 descends back down into the valley of lament. If we were to look at it merely poetically in the Hebrew, 64 lines of poetry from Psalm 3 to Psalm 7 and 64 lines of poetry from Psalm 9 to Psalm 13. Which means that Psalm 8 in the middle of two valleys of lament, is teaching us a very important aspect of the Christian life. And that is that the people of God in the middle of sadness will find a reason to rejoice in the Lord. The people of God in the middle of sadness will find a reason to rejoice in the Lord. And we really want to ask that question of Psalm 8 this morning, I think appropriately as we see how this psalm is organized in the Psalter. What is our reason to rejoice in the midst of such great sadness? Well, to answer that question, I want to look with you at this text in three ways this morning, under three headings. I want you to see firstly the mystery of God's power. The mystery of God's power in verses 1 and 2 of the text. And I want you to see the wonder of God's care in verses 3 and 4 of the text. And then I want you to see the salvation of God's man in verses 5 to the end of the psalm, but also in how this psalm is interpreted in the New Testament by Jesus and the author of Hebrews. I want to start with this mystery of God's power because it is a mystery that we're given here. We might even call it a a paradox. Right at the opening of Psalm 8, there's soaring prose, isn't it? How majestic is your name, O Lord, in all of the earth. Your glory is set above the heavens. The psalmist is ushering us into a vision of the majesty of God. We might say the the magnification or the bigness of who God is in this text. He wants us to know that His glory is not bound up just merely in creation, though we can glimpse it in the things He's made. No, His real glory is set even above the heavens themselves. He sits in a throne room where He rules over all. So the vision that's given to us, the psalm 8 of this God, is not a God that's of creation or a God that's in creation, but a God that's above creation and all over creation. He is majestic in His name, His character over all of the earth. It's a huge vision. The psalmist goes big at the beginning of Psalm 8. And then very surprisingly, the psalm goes really small. Really small. There in verse 2, he says, Out of the mouth 
of babies and infants. You have established strength. It just goes from this very large vision. The majesty of God. Glory set above the heavens into the mouth of babies and infants. The most, well, the weakest, the most helpless, the, the, the smallest uh, within uh, creation among humankind. And fascinatingly, he says, through them you establish your strength. You see the paradox. You see the mystery. I'd like to ask you the question is that the power of someone displayed primarily in their exercise of the force of that power because of their station, their position, or their character? Or might it be that the great power that's displayed by this God, the God who David is presenting to us here in Psalm 8, is displayed in the fact that he can use the smallest thing imaginable to establish his strength. He only needs a baby. He only needs an, an infant. What we might call the, the weakest link in the midst of humankind. It's really quite remarkable when you hear him uh, communicated in this way because he actually sees the mouth of babies and infants as that which stands against foes. That's the way he puts it in verse 2. You've established your strength among infants and babies because of your foes, and through them you're going to steal the enemy and the avenger. We might even say, and it could be translated, you're going to silence your enemies. You're going to silence your enemies and silence the avengers. Now, we, we don't know the context of why David's writing this psalm. We don't know what's going on. Is it a personal situation that he's in? Is it the people of Israel that's in view? There's no note that's given to us with regards to the context. But I don't think I'm too far out on a limb that maybe as David writes these lines in verse 2 that the face of Goliath shows up in his mind. He, a young shepherd boy, with weakness, seemingly inconsequential, approaches the large enemy and venger and foe among the people of Israel who day and night for 40 days came out and taunted the people of Israel who spoke of their strength and ridiculed them for their cowardice and for their inabilities. And David, we might say a babe, a young shepherd boy with a mere stone and a slingshot but with the Spirit of God at his back, laid low the largest Philistine soldier. Then in the ancient Near Eastern world, because God is pleased to use the smallest and the inconsequential to establish his strength. What we might say in that moment, the one who came out for 40 days and taunted Israel was still, was silent. It does seem that something of that reality is upon David's heart and he wants us to know that the Lord doesn't need much in terms of human strength and power to display His strength and power. In fact, Paul will write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God is pleased to use the things that are foolish to shame the wise. He's pleased to use the weak things of the world 
to humble those things which are strong. He is, he is accustomed to using the things that are not to overcome the things that are, are so that when we boast, what do we boast in? The Lord. It's a faithful prayer to pray, Lord, we want you to redeem and make a name for yourself in such a way that no man, woman, or child could steal glory from you. We desire for your name to be honored in all of the heavens and in all of the earth. And thus, we would ask you, go use what no one would expect to use as a means by which to make a name for yourself. And in fact, it does seem that that's the focus of the psalmist in Psalm 8. There is a, there's a sense of a verbal quality that's being described there in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes. Notice it's not just babes. It's not just infants. It's out of the mouth of babes and infants. And if, if we are to translate steel as silencing, we see an enemy that once roared has been hushed, and we see a baby who is now crying out in strength. And of course, Jesus, as we read earlier in the liturgy today from Matthew chapter 21, used this very passage to interpret what he was doing when he cleansed the temple. The day that he went in among, we might say, the enemies. Those money changers, those robbers, as they were referred to, among the people. And he turned over the tables and he ran the money changers out. And the children are singing in the background as he does, Hosanna to the son of David. The same David that's being described here in Psalm 8. Jesus says to them, I know this angers you, chief priests, enemies and foes. I know you would like me to hush them. But the fact is, David's already prophesied moments just like this that it will be through the voices, the praises of babies, that my strength will be established among God's people. This is the mystery of God's strength. In the midst of a world right now where we're at each other's throats, are we not? And where it seems like every day there's another hit. and We want to get someone, right, who can help with this situation. Someone's got to stand up, some leader, some, some somebody. Someone's got to change things. Someone with influence, someone, someone who could make things better. We often look, like the world often looks, to the things of the world that we would call powerful. But just remember, God is often using things that the world doesn't use. And His redemption often comes from places that you would never expect it. Paradoxically, in mystery, his strength comes from those that are weakest, which means that it could be the likes of no names like us that he might be pleased to work. And in fact, it might be through the praises of a people who are willing to lift up their voice in rejoicing among the laments of a community because they have a future that is certain and sure and a gospel to trust in, a rock on which to stand in the midst of a stormy sea that becomes the testimony by which Hosanna, the son of David, is established in our own generation. The mystery of God's strength. Don't forget how God works. It's unlike the way the world works. But David teaches us, secondly, the wonder of God's care in this text. Look at it there in verse 3, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Now again, notice what the psalmist is doing. He started really big, didn't he? 
in verse 1, and he got really small in verse 2. You notice what he's doing in verse 3. He's getting really big again. He goes out to the heavens. He's looking now at the stars, as you know David must have done hundreds of times keeping sheep in an, in an ancient Near Eastern sky with no light pollution like we experience here in Nashville, he would have seen thousands of stars. How many times did he lay on his back as the sheep grazed and just took in the majesty of the created order in the cosmos? And he didn't have at his disposal the, the idea of the Milky Way and galaxies upon galaxies, which we actually now know through the advances of what's been revealed to us through telescopes and and through the technology of our age. The wonders upon wonders of not even knowing the ex how large the expanse is. He says, I see the work of your fingers. I see your fingerprints, as it were, over everything that has been made. And as he pans wide, he then gets really small again. What is man that you are mindful of him? Who is man? You would care for him. You see, the problem with most of us in the way in which we actually live our lives, if we're really honest, is we have a really big view of us. We have a really tiny view of God. It's very small. And David is turning all of that on his head. He's saying, I want you to really stare out at the cosmos. The God that we're speaking of is the one who right now holds us in orbit, sustains everything by the word of his power, designed your heart and its beating and your ability for your lungs to breathe in and out. The one who blooms things in the spring and the one who brings snows in the winter. The one who oversees everything by the word of his power. That's who it is that we're talking about. Now take that in, everyone. Now consider yourself in the midst of all of that. Ever had that experience of flying in an airplane over a big city, watching all those cars and those high rises, and it just seems to go on forever, and saying to yourself, you know, everybody's got a story like mine, some playing down there, and they think whatever it is they're doing is really big. And there's billions of us that think that. And we are really small. It's a really healthy perspective, friends. It's really healthy perspective. When I was reading Psalm 8, I couldn't help but remember my dear friend Dan Myers. Many of you know Dan and Julie Myers, community members of this congregation who we support and have sent to the, the wild west of Clarksville, Tennessee um, to serve on a military base there. We support them as uh, part of our mission support as a local congregation. Some of you know Dan has written music and, and he's written a wonderful song called Speck. And it's meditating on Psalm 8. And in that song, he says, he says, you know what we really are? We're a speck on a speck on another little speck. That's one of his lines. We're just a speck on a speck on another little speck that's passing. Life is like a vapor. And he's meditating on this, this idea. But Dan, appropriately, as he's reflecting on it and writes the song, and as David does here, he doesn't go, well, I must be unimportant. I must not matter. That's not the conclusion. He says, But you, O oh God, though I'm nothing but a speck on a speck on another little speck, you, O oh God, are mindful of me. You care about me. 
You know the hairs on my head. You are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. There is nothing about my past, present, or future that you haven't scripted the end from the beginning. Every single piece you're intimately involved with, you care for me very deeply. What he's astonished at is not how small he is in the largeness of the cosmos, but how immense and great our God is to love something so small and to care for a people so little, as it were. You know what touches our hearts? Is when, say, the Queen of England were to show up, Her Majesty, and we would use language, lofty language, to describe her position and place. And we see someone of great renown make an overture to the littlest and most marginalized and neglected. And what does it do to us? It melts our hearts. But we, we, would, we would expect they wouldn't give us the time of day. We're actually nervous to be around them. They surely have more important things to do. And yet God is lending his ear and his hand to you all day long. He is mindful of you. He is caring of you. Now, part of what, part of what David sees in this, especially in verses 5 to 8, is this, this, this glimpse into just how remarkable God has been in his creation of mankind. Not only are we little in the midst of the cosmos, but like you, you've... You've, you've minted us with your image. You've chosen like little old us to be the way you want to reflect your glory in the world. Like not only do you care for me, not only are you mindful of me, you shaped me in such a way that you're reflected through me. Notice the language. You've crowned me with glory and honor. Don't forget those are words we used of God earlier in the passage. Glory and honor now are being applied to the creation of man. You've given us dominion, rule. What has he been doing? He's ruling over all of this earth. But what has he done with us? He set us up as rulers in the earth, within creation. So much so that we could say it this way. We are to creation what God is over creation. He has set us up as kings and queens within creation. To order it, to make it flourish and become beautiful, to be fruitful and multiply in our caretaking of it. That's what he had done in Genesis chapter 1 when he formed the land and the seas and the skies and then filled them with all good things. He had just shown us a picture of what fruitfulness and multiplication looked like. And then he made us in such a way that we could reflect that in the way that we work and live and have our being in the world. He's astonished by the fact that God would mint us as those who are made in the very image of God, he is lost in wonder at God's care. He's lost in wonder at God's care. Now, as you, as you consider that, and especially as he comes to the, to the end of that passage, and he says, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I hope part of you says, that is wonderful. That is absolutely marvelous. That's astonishing. It doesn't really look and feel like that in the world I live in. That like 
all things have been put in subjection under the feet of men. Verse 6. And that all the beasts of the field just, you know, kind of do our bidding. It doesn't really look exactly like Psalm 8. In fact, it's almost like David has gone back to Genesis chapter 1 in the context of where he's at, and he's gotten a little nostalgic, you know? He's just hung out in Genesis 1 and 2, and he's just talking about pre-fallen man. It doesn't seem to intersect with the place and situation in which we actually find ourselves. But we actually, as we turn the pages of Scripture to the New Testament, well, the author of Hebrews does. The author of Hebrews does. In fact, the author of Hebrews knows, as Paul knows at the beginning of the book of Romans, that what has actually happened to us is that we, in Genesis chapter 3, decided to choose the creation over the Creator. We lost sight of the majesty and the glory of God, and we got wrapped up in what is the glory of creation. A rightful glory, a good glory, but a glory in its proper place, rightly ordered, underneath and in submission to God and His purposes. And we decided we're going to be God. And we're going to use the creation to sort of as a stepping stone to become like God. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you surely won't die. You'll actually become like God. I think there's something latent in the hearts of most of us where we tend to think that something in creation is going to make us either feel like or ascend to a position or a place where we're in control. We get to that place in our vocation, certain relationships, certain money figures. We kind of feel like we're in control. We kind of feel a little bit like God's. And that, I think, at the center of this passage reveals what has become an idolatrous spirit that is the mark of us as people now. And so as the writer of Hebrews picks up the thread of Psalm chapter 8, it's the longest quotation that we actually have of Psalm 8 in the New Testament. What, what this writer does in Hebrews is he says, listen, we don't see all of this happening right now in humanity. In fact, we see in many ways creation ruling over us. Y'all remember this thing called COVID-19? Do y'all remember this thing? It's still out there. It's taking a little backseat in the news though, but it's still, it's still out there. Um, does it look like we're ruling it? Not really, huh? Yeah. Right now, there is a tropical storm hitting the coast, coming up down the Gulf of Mexico, beating our beloved beaches down there. We have Cornerstone members headed directly to watch rain for a few days on the beach, which is going to be their situation for a little while. Um, we should rule over that. What do y'all say? Make it better for them. Good luck. Have you noticed that the creation's fighting back? Have you noticed that in your flower beds? And the more the effort that you put forward, it's like the more it fights back. There's this thing called sin and curse. It's real. And there's not a, one human being in the world that's been able to lick it. And its greatest strength 
is death itself. Do you feel like we as humanity have licked death? We've tried. Still seems to be having the upper hand. What do you think? In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews takes Psalm 8 and says, this is why Jesus came. Because Psalm 8 is not just about mankind reflecting on who we were before the fall. Psalm 8 is a testimony of who Jesus has become for the world and for his people. Do you see? He has become for us a second Adam who is crowned right now with glory and honor. Who is made a little lower than the angels. One who, when he walked on the earth, had diseases and brokenness of physical capacity come to him and he spoke words of healing and pushed back the curse. When he was hid in the squall on the Sea of Galilee and his disciples were shaken in their boots, with one word from his lips, it turned into glass. He became a man like us, but no mere man, the majestic God over heaven and over earth. And as he broke into this world, he actually took on all of what our sin and fallenness has spawned. And he subjected himself to the worst of it because he actually came under the power of the greatest enemy of which sin gave birth to in the world, which is death itself. And yet, just when you thought you heard the sinister laughter of death, he rose again from the dead. Where Paul can now write to us in a taunting way, O death, where is your victory? I mean, I've heard you speak of it before, but it seems as if it is no more. Where is your sting? I can't find it when I look into the beloved face of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has overcome sin and its effects. And now the foe, the enemy that used to taunt us, has been silenced. He has established his strength in what looked like the greatest picture of weakness, the cross. God says, listen, you think you've got something on me? I'm going to go use a cross, the weakest thing you've got, and I'm going to use it to show you my strength. You think you've got something on me? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Do you see, this is why I think when we understand that this is the power of the gospel that's afoot right now in the world, and you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ are found in Him and are positionally in the power of Christ through the, through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, when you begin to realize that, there's a hope and a confidence and a reason to rejoice in the midst of all of the lament. Because there's a hope that you know is coming. Right now we have a ruler who is on the throne, who has promised to come back. He's never up for re-election. He is the perfect king. He does all things right. You're in him. He's mindful of you. He cares for you.
He has conquered your greatest enemy. You have absolutely nothing to fear. And so when you lift up your voice in praise, in the midst of all lament, it becomes a force that the world cannot handle until the kingdom of God comes in all of its glory. That's what happens. And when it comes in its glory, here's what it's going to look like. Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. All things that should be at each other's throats are going to be at peace. And guess what? A little child is going to lead them. A little child is going to lead them. The weakest element among us will become the picture of God's power and His grace and His strength. Friends, do you feel weak? Do you feel like a speck on a speck on another little speck? God is mindful of you. He cares for you. He's redeemed you if you're in Christ today. And He is pleased to use the foolishness of this world to shame the wise. If you feel weak, you're probably right where you should be for God to use you. So lift up your voice to declare His praise. And let's let the mouth of babes like us silence the enemies of our Lord in the world. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we would ask that you would accomplish this purpose. We ask, Lord, that you would glorify yourself in and through your church. We ask that you would equip us by the grace that is given to us in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. That your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, bless us in these truths now and lead us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.